0: All right, we have our youth uh, joining us today. Welcome to family service. We are going through the same stuff in youth as well as in here with our uh, families. And uh, we're at James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. And as we were reading this, uh, you may have thought, whoa, this sounds a little different from what We've learned about how we're saved, how we're justified. Uh, you know, if, hey, this is your chance to yell out at church, we are saved by grace through faith alone, right? But what does James 2 uh, say uh, in verse uh, 24? You see? that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So this passage has been a passage that really, uh, in a way, separates uh, the Christian church, the Protestant faith, uh, from, say, the Roman Catholic Church and how they interpret this passage uh, in other places. we're going to spend a, a little bit of time maybe digging into what James could possibly mean. Is he really going against Paul? Is he contradicting Paul's theology, everything he's written in Romans, uh, and how, you know, Ephesians, Galatians, and all of these things? Do we find uh, conflict between these two men and what they're teaching? Or is there uh, continuity in Scripture? All right. Uh, all right. Hey. Man, if you're in high school, you're going to be glad you came to this service right now because I've got something for you guys in this introduction. I'm going to teach you how you know someone likes you, all right? See, that was a big, big struggle for, for us when we were your age. We didn't know if the guy, li- you know, does this person like us? Are they just nice? Are they just friendly? What's the deal? All right. So this is not what I wrote. Uh, this person actually has a Ph.D. It's a doctorate, all right? Susan Whitbourne. Uh, PhD is, is it's, you know, it's not easily acquired. You have to study a lot and write a lot. Uh, you know, in, in theology, we call PhD stands for permanent head damage. <laughs> uh, just a joke. Here's how you can tell if someone likes you. They want to spend time with you. They ask you about your day. How is your day? They trust you with things. They help you when you need help. Hmm. They respect your views and opinions, your perspective. They include you in certain decisions. Uh, Here's an obvious one. They show affection towards you. Here's another one that's interesting. They look at you, right? So, by the way, this is for everyone except my daughter. You you can just tune out for a while here. (laughs) They like to talk about their past with you. They want to talk to you about their when they were younger, things that happened, et cetera. uh, They make you feel good about yourself. All right. Now, some of you may be thinking, hmm, you really didn't need a PhD to write this. These are kind of sort of obvious things, right? Like, they show affection for you? Yeah, of course. But here's the thing. Uh, We all believe that if there's something internally in your heart and in your mind, that eventually it'll come out externally through your actions, your words, and how you live. That's why you have articles like this, right? And James here is also saying something very similar. However, he's saying it about our faith. In a nutshell, he's saying, if you have genuine faith, so you love God, and it's there in your heart, and it's a part of your mind. You have, the, the object of your faith is Christ. You, you know who he is. You're getting to know about him, and you have faith in him. well, his whole point that he's making in this passage is that it will come out externally. How you live. Your actions. And I'll get to this, but I think a good way of summing it up is you will live a life of obedience, okay? So let's dig into this. In verse 14, he kind of raises this question. In a way, it's rhetorical. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, all right? So you got to imagine someone walking around and he's saying, I believe, I'm a Christian, I follow God. But he doesn't have works. The way that James uses this word, it's a very general sense. He's talking about uh, just a general word to describe the way you live in obedience to God. So that's the word works. Okay. So his question is, hey, if you've got someone who says he's a Christian, but his life doesn't show it, it's opposite of what he says, he asks this really important question. Can that faith save him? A lot of people don't like that question. Can that faith save him? Because we know he's about to talk about works. And we cringe at the idea of works salvation. We don't want to say we're saved by works because we've read Paul over and over and we've heard so many sermons from Paul how we're saved by grace alone through faith. And so is... James really asking this question, can that kind of faith save him? Some people have said, you know what, he's not talking about eternal salvation here. He can't be. We don't want to go there. So what they say is maybe he's talking about being delivered from some kind of earthly trial, something lesser, because we don't want to say our works has an integral part in saving us. Right away, he's going to give this illustration. It's a good illustration, you guys. All right? In verse 15, the first thing we see about this illustration, and it seems like it's a hypothetical situation, but a hypothetical situation based on reality, right? Based on things that maybe were hap- was happening in the church at that time. He says, if a brother or sister, so it's not just anyone, if a fellow believer, a brother or sister, someone who's part of our community, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. So poorly clothed is not just the idea of, um, you know, has bad fashion sense, uh, that's a poor choice. You know, I've, I've had many days where I think, you know, I can't win at home. If, you know, my wife looks at the way I dress and, ah, uh, that's a poor choice, right? And, and then if I try to look a little more hip, then my daughter thinks, you're trying too hard, Dad. You're... You know, just dress your age. And so it's like, it's like, it's hard. There's no, I'm struggling to find that middle ground. This concept of being poorly clothed is, it's the idea of someone in rags. They don't, they they don't have the money to buy what they have to wear. So it's not adequate. It's a desperate situation, all right? So if it's cold, they can't keep themselves warm. They can't keep themselves protected from the elements. It's not something that any of us would desire. Lacking in daily food, I think, is is basically what it sounds like. We're talking about a believer who is constantly falling short of the required food to sustain him or herself, to just stay alive, always falling short. I don't know if you guys can imagine a life of constantly being hungry, of constantly being cold, of constantly being exposed to the elements. You're either sunburnt or the wind is chaffing away at your skin or there's something, you can't protect yourself from the bugs, your dirt, the dirt is getting all over you. And on top of that, you're just hungry all the time. But you're part of this community called the church. And there are people in that church that call you brother or sister. And that's a term you haven't heard in a while. No one's called you brother for so long. Kind of just out on the streets. That's the description that James is giving here. It's an obvious need, and there's an obvious response. I think that's how James tells this story. But he says, but what if one of you, so meaning someone in the church, instead of doing what is the obvious thing to do, what if you say to that person, go in peace, be warmed and filled? Now, these are very (laughs) biblical-sounding phrases. Go in peace is a common biblical blessing. Go in peace describes what God does for his children, right? The favor he bestows upon his kingdom, upon his people. And that idea of go in peace is a great idea of, yes, may, may God bless you. May he show his favor upon you. May you have peace in your life. And then the second part of that phrase, be warmed and filled, it, 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 it sounds like a prayer. It's, hey, it, it's like saying, may God, you know, keep you warm. May God fill your empty stomach. L.T. Johnson, when he describes these words, he says, it's reprehensible. It's completely reprehensible. Why? Because it sounds so religious. It's so based upon God's word and who he is, but all it does is it functions as what he calls a religious cover for the failure to act. A religious cover, a religious prayer, but there is nothing that is done for that brother or sister. And so James asks the question in verse 16, what good are those words? It would be like if you guys, some of, I've seen some of you guys that uh, serve the people on a Saturday morning. And I know it's not easy getting up that early on a Saturday morning when you're under 45 years old. And yet you show up, you serve, and you work hard. But what if you showed up at Serve the people, and you saw the line of people, and you just greeted each one as they passed, and you said, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. They would look at you, and you have nothing to give them, nothing to help them with, not a hug, just those words. It would be like going to the soup kitchen on Tuesday nights, and we would see the homeless gathered, but instead of feeding them or helping them, we all stand in a line in front of them, and together in unison we say, Go in peace. Peace. Maybe we'll say it very earnestly. And maybe some of us who are very sensitive, there'll even be a tear. Be warmed and be filled. Now, it is sad, I think, that James keeps on using these illustrations that describe the mistreatment of the poor. I think it's sad because maybe it's a window into what was existing at that time in the church. Maybe there was quite a good amount of these kinds of things going on. We don't know, we're not sure, but it's easy to say, yeah, probably. However, the main point for James is not the mistreatment or the proper treatment of those who are in need. The main point of this illustration is found in verse 17 when he says what? Take a look at that with me. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He uses this illustration to... To display something and i think very well the words that that person gave to the believer in need are useless it's empty and he says so is a faith that does not have any works he says just like those words to the believer in need are empty he says so is faith that doesn't have works it's empty What good is that? Now, in verse 18, it's almost as if he anticipates what uh, the objections would be to what he's saying. Hmm. And at this point, you know, just kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe just so you can, can understand that Paul and James weren't competing with, hey, who's right, who's wrong, who has better theology, who's You know, who's the better writer and things like that. Look, James and Paul were were talking about very different things. Okay? And in fact, both of them would be in 100% agreement about how we're saved, of how God saves the sinner, of how we can go to heaven. But Paul, in his writings... He was always dealing with the, well, not always, but he was primarily dealing with the problem of someone who is trying to be saved through their works, through the obedience of the law, trying to earn their way into heaven. If I do this and if I do that, if I live my life this way, then God must honor that life. He must reward me and give me eternal life, salvation through obedience of the law. And Paul's point to that was no, the law will only reveal to us how sinful we are. We must turn to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith. It is that Christ was perfectly obedient and not us, but he gives us that obedience if we have, uh, he gives us that righteousness in terms of we can be declared righteous if we would only have faith in him. But James is talking about something different. One way to understand this is it's like Paul is dealing with new life. All right? If you go to the hospital, there's a section of the hospital. My mom was an RN, and she got to work in the maternity ward. The only thing she ever did all day or all night, whichever shift she had, was she dealt with newborns and moms who had just given birth. That was her department in the hospital. And it's like saying Paul was dealing with that department of our faith, of our life of faith. James is now dealing with all the way from pediatrics to geriatrics, from being a kid to growing old and maturing and one day dying. He is talking about what happens now in our life as a result of that faith. You guys get it? Obstetrics, pediatrics, geriatrics. Paul... James, all right? This is very different. But he he anticipates the objection, and in verse 18 he says this. Look, someone's going to say this. All right, all right. You have faith, I have works. Right, all right. Now, his entire objection to that is very simple. He says you cannot separate faith and works, and the minute you separate faith and works, you're in danger. And it works both ways. Because if you concentrate on only the works and you separate it from faith and you concentrate on this side, well, you have an incomplete picture of the Christian life. But he also says if you try to separate it the other way where you only think about the faith and you don't have the works, which Uh, commentators think was the the perversion of Paul's gospel that James was dealing with here. There were people who heard what Paul was teaching and it trickled down to them. And there were uh, probably a group of people saying, hey, look, all that matters is what's in here and what's in my heart. I can live my life the way I want to live my life. As long as I think the right stuff, as long as in my heart there's the right You know, sort of love I try to grow for Christ. It doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter the the things I do. And James is like, no, 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 no. See, you're trying to separate faith and works. It doesn't work like that. Think about this. Think about this. And here's a powerful uh, statement he makes. In verse 19, you believe that God is one. You guys, did you know? I think there's sarcasm in the Bible. And I think James is being sarcastic. You believe that God is one. Mm. You do well. It's very sarcastic, right? Don't you hate sarcastic? You good, good job, right? It's like almost you know maybe kids maybe your parents do that once in a while, right? You you clean up and it's like expected, but you're like oh I cleaned up and they're like good job, right? This is kind of like how I I view this here with James. Because he's like saying, yeah, of course you believe that God is one. So that's a way of saying, all right, you've got good doctrine. You understand the Old Testament teachings on how there is one God and not multiple gods. So you don't believe in the God of rain and fertility and the gods of storms and all of these other false gods that, you know, other people around us believe in. You believe in the one true God. That's great. But guess what? So do what? So do demons. He says that even they believe in the one true God. And in fact, their belief is so great that what is their response to being in the presence of the one true God? They shudder. That's an extreme word there. It's not just talking about, like, getting chills or the hair standing up. It is being terrified. It is shaking violently because of the fear that you have. You shudder. So whether it's in the presence of God or it's at the thought of God or the knowledge of God, and you would not shudder and have that kind of reaction or response unless you had great theology. And James is like, dude, even the demons believe that God is real that God exists, and that he's the all-powerful God. So up to this point, he's described, I think, how, in my outline, I titled it a dead and useless faith. But now he's going to help us to really understand what what genuine faith looks like. And what genuine faith is. And once again, he's going to turn to illustrations. And he was writing to primarily a Jewish community who had converted over to Christianity. So he's going to use two illustrations from the Jewish faith. Two heroes. One is Abraham. And this is where it gets really confusing. Because it sounds like he's contradicting Paul here. Was not Abraham... I'm starting to read from verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. We don't want to misunderstand what James is doing here. Again, we have to remember, he's talking about something very different from Paul. He's approaching it from a different perspective. He's not talking about infancy, a newborn Christian. He's talking about maturity and the process of growing in Christ and what kind of life we ought to have. But this is an important distinction to understand. When Paul uses the word justified or to be justified, he's talking about being declared or reckoned righteous. The illustration I always use, and I've, if you've been through membership class, you've heard this multiple times. If you've been through our baptism class, you've heard this multiple times, but it's like getting a speeding ticket. You're going 55 in a 35 mile per hour zone. You get caught, you get ticketed, but you go to court, and guess what? The, the cop doesn't show up. The court declares you innocent. You're freed from that ticket. You don't have to pay. It's as if you were going 35, even though you were going 55. And that's the the legal language that Paul uses. Even though we're sinners, because of the obedience of Christ, the court of the high king decides to declare us innocent. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Our sins to Christ. Now, when James talks about justified... He is talking about something that is much more in common with the Old Testament and Jewish understanding of this word. Just like in the English language, we can have multiple usages of the same word. He's talking about being demonstrated or shown to be righteous. So his whole point is this. And he even quotes Genesis fifteen six, which Paul does too, where he talks about how when Abraham received the promise of God, right? So what was that promise? Well, part of it was, Abraham, you're going to have a ton of kids. A ton of kids. In fact, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. And the problem was, Abraham was really old, and he didn't have a single kid yet. Okay? It would be like going to a man in his 80s and telling him, look, you're going to become the father of a great nation. You're going to have many, 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 many descendants. But that person doesn't even have a single child yet in his life. And Genesis 15:6, what it says about Abraham, and James, he writes about this, and so does Paul, he also writes about this, is that Abraham believed in that promise. He trusted that promise. And because he believed, what happened? He was declared righteous. He was declared righteous. But what James does now is, again, remember, we're talking about later in life. He remembers a story from Genesis 22. What happened later in Abraham's life after he had Isaac, after Isaac had grown up a bit, after he had developed that bond with his son? I don't know what they did back then in those times. Play catch, basketball league, soccer. Ball games, I don't know. They had their version, I guess, of father-son time. But God came to him and gave what sounded like a horrible command. Go sacrifice your one and only son. Go sacrifice him. Ah! (laughs) This seems really weird, God, because you promised to make me, you know, my descendants would... So that's one, and and then now, it seems like we're going in two different directions. But you see what James does is he points out, it was the obedience to that command that demonstrated, that showed that that initial belief and trust was genuine. So it wasn't just that Abraham trusted when things were perfect, were fine, when it was like, okay, nothing's at stake, I'll believe and I'll trust, but when push comes to shove and when God is really asking for something, when God is asking for obedience, he fell away or something. No, he he demonstrated, he was justified in that sense. And so... The language that James uses of being brought to completion, he's talking about how that obedience was the intended consequence, the intended result of that faith. Do you guys understand? And James is saying, how can you have one without the other? And he's saying, this is why we celebrate Abraham. Abraham. Would we celebrate Abraham if he believed and it was reckoned to him to be righteous, but when God came to him and gave him this test, if he failed that test? If he fled with his son and disappeared and tried to run? Would we remember Abraham as a man of faith? James' point is no. And then he brings up Rahab, and, you know, in a way, I feel bad because she's forever labeled as the prostitute. And this is not James trying to shame Rahab. It's highlighting her incredible journey. She was a Gentile prostitute in a foreign land who somehow had heard about the one true living God. It was beyond all odds that she would have faith and trust in this God, but she did. And so when... She came upon a critical moment in her life where the Israelite spy said to her, look, you've got to help us. You've got to protect us. You've got to save us. But if you do, if you do, man, then God will save you and your family." What those Israelite spies asked Rahab to do was go against her family, her people, her traditions, to go against everything she had known in all her life and instead somehow trust a foreign God and a promise of salvation through people she had never met. But yet, why do we celebrate her faith? Because she risked her life and trusted in that word. It was her obedience that demonstrated and showed her faith. These are strong arguments from James. They're remarkable because. It's a reminder that we cannot separate one from the other. And so, yes, the mantra is real and it is true. We are saved by grace through faith alone. But James adds this very important reminder. But this faith does not come alone. And it's a faith that is not by itself. It produces obedience. So James is not saying, look, here's faith and here's works, which is the way we are saved. He's not saying, here's faith. We have to add works on to make sure you're saved because it's not his intention to do that. He knows how we're saved. He's talking about maturing in Christ. And so for us today, the application is simple. This is not a time to sit here and think, well, do I have a dead and useless faith am i not really saved oh no my life doesn't match up i don't have the same obedience i'm going to hell nor is the application (laughs) that fellow over there is surely a dead and useless guy his faith is not real boy he comes to church he sings with us he says all the right things in small groups but man, his lifestyle, it shows us he's got a dead and useless faith. He's, he's not one of us. This is not the application. James' whole point, whole point of this, was to say to anyone who would say, Look, it's not important how I live, it's important what I think, it's important what I believe. He would say, No. That's not true. How can you say that? If you have faith, you're going to have works. You can't have one without the other. So to us who are struggling to obey, I think that's a fair assessment, isn't it? We're struggling to obey and follow and live our lives with this radical obedience and radical trust. We're struggling to to say in the face of philosophies that promote wealth and success and pleasure and all of these things, we're struggling to say, no, the biblical way is the right way, the true way of life, the righteous path that leads to joy. To us, James would say, it's okay, you gotta, Keep fighting. Hang in there. Pursue righteousness. Pursue a life of obedience. Amen? God gave us the faith that saves us. He will also mature us. Because think about this God didn't just sit up in in his throne on heaven and tell us with words, I love you. Jesus Christ actually humbled himself to the point of death on the cross in order to win us over, to free us from the bondage of sin and death. He justifies us. Amen? And he who died for us will not let us fall away in the process of maturity. Amen? He's going to walk us through this. But we've got to put away any thoughts, any misgivings that says, doesn't matter how we live, it doesn't matter what we do, and it does. Because James would ask the question, if that's what you're going to say, he would say, well, what good is your faith? What good is your faith? if it doesn't push us or lead us to the intended conclusion. Okay, let's pray. Lord, James 2 is a hard word for us. It's a hard word because we are disobedient people. We still struggle with our sins. We still struggle to stay on that path. We wander about quite a bit. We get pushed Here and there, we get blown about by the philosophies of this world, and yet you save us and call us your children. Our desire is to have a faith that is genuine and true, a faith that produces obedience. That's our prayer today, Lord. Help us and give us that strength. Take us on that journey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.